Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is not one of the regular episodes of the podcast, but it's a Halloween season bonus that is being written and performed by Troy Taylor, which is me. My partner in crime, Cody Beck, is sitting this one out as far as recording goes, but he's going to be the one stuck cleaning up the mess I will inevitably leave behind as I record this. Well, as we near the end of this season, I know what you're thinking, thank God, of Haunted Hollywood, we're taking you on a weekly walk along the back streets and alleys of the City of Angels. It's a celebration of the Halloween season, and it's a way of wrapping up a season that really just never seems to end. We know. Believe me, we know. And we're sorry about that, but not really. Um, We had a lot of good stories, and we're not quite done yet, but we're getting there. So if you've missed any of the shows this season, or if this is your first time listening, you're going to want to go back to episode 70 of the podcast, which will get you caught up on everything that's already happened. Just be aware that the episodes in the season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So if you keep listening and you don't like what you hear, I tried to tell you. Anyway, on we go. On August 23, 1926, the most heartbreaking Hollywood news of the silent film era reached the general public when New York City's Polyclinic Hospital announced that Rudolph Valentino was dead. Valentino, known as the Sheik and as Hollywood's greatest lover, had died from a burst appendix. It seemed too boring of a death for a man like Valentino, and so, not surprisingly, Rumors followed him to the grave. Most of them claimed he'd either been poisoned by a jilted lover or had been murdered by a jealous husband. You see, during his career on the silent screen, he had been the fantasy of millions of women and one of the most popular movie stars in the world. His death literally caused chaos in the streets, and thousands of weeping women mobbed the funeral parlor where his body lay in state and wreaked havoc in the city of New York. He was only 31 when his life came to an end and it was at the height of his fame. The mass hysteria that followed him to the grave is a puzzle to many of us today since, well, he's barely remembered by most people and has been relegated to a bygone era of dusty, silent films. In fact, we likely wouldn't talk much about him at all if it wasn't for his ghost because he is without a doubt the most popular spirit that haunts Hollywood. And it's the stories of his ghost that keeps the memory of him alive today. He was born Rodolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Philibert Goulomé de Valentina de Antigola in Cara Leonetta, Italy in May 1895. That was a mouthful. His father was a military officer turned veterinarian and his mother was the daughter of a famous French surgeon. Rudolf grew up both bilingual and brilliant living in a comfortable middle-class home in the seaside village of Toronto. When Rudy was only nine, his father passed away and the rest of his young childhood was marked by trouble with the law. Hoping to get the discipline he needed, his mother sent him to a boarding school north of Rome. He stayed there until he was 15 when he moved to Venice, hoping to be admitted to a naval school. He passed his entrance exams, but was rejected because he wasn't seen as 
manly enough, which is ironic since he would become a sex symbol to millions of women and men just a few years later. Rudy was then sent to an agricultural school in the mountain village of Negri. But while there, he fell in love with the school cook's daughter and distracted, allowed his grades to fail and barely graduated. But it didn't really matter anyway, because this was a guy who was never going to be a farmer. In 1912, Rudy drifted to Paris. He looked for work, but found nothing suitable. He fell in love with a dancer from a music hall, but when she left him, he begged his mother for enough money to get to Monte Carlo. There, he lost everything at the gambling tables and was forced to return home in disgrace. Eager to get rid of him, his relatives pooled their money and booked passage for him to New York at the end of 1913. Unlike most immigrants of the time, Rudy spoke passable English and had a small amount of financial security thanks to his family. He was handsome and charming and made many friends while on his way to America and used them to his advantage when he arrived. He was drawn to the glittering lights of New York's theater district and its fashionable shops and restaurants and the wealthy people that frequented them. With a few tweaks to his backstory and being fluent in French, he moved in the same circles as the European playboys who had come to New York looking for American wives. Rudy used his good looks and his dancing skills to mix with the city's socialites, even though he was working as a gardener's assistant on Long Island at the time. But that wouldn't last long. Rudy was determined to get into show business, but no matter how good looking he was, those jobs were hard to find and he soon ran out of cash. Too proud to ask his mother for more money, he slept in Central Park and sent her short letters about how well he was doing. Well, a series of odd jobs followed, as well as work as an extra in some small films. Then, thanks to his skills as a dancer, he became a dance partner for hire at the fashionable Maxims in Midtown Manhattan. Rudy soon began twirling unescorted women on the dance floor of the upscale club, but part of the job description, which is officially a gigolo, included private dance lessons upstairs for wealthy female patrons. Frequently, these lessons led to paid sex, a part of the job that Valentino would be highly sensitive about when the subject came up in later years. While Rudy made good money as a gigolo at Maxim's, he refused to let his show business dreams die. He continued to work as an extra in films, appearing as a background ballroom dancer in several party scenes. His skill on the dance floor helped him to make connections besides those at Maxim's, connections that would eventually help his film career. One of those was with Mae Murray, a beautiful Broadway personality who was featured in the Ziegfeld Follies. Later, when she was a rising movie star, Murray helped Rudy to break into Hollywood movie making. He also met entertainer Bonnie Glass, who hired him to partner with her in exhibition dancing for vaudeville and cabaret shows. He also teamed up with Joan Sawyer, another prominent performer. Rudy, even while sleeping in the park, had maintained his friendships with the Manhattan social set and had become particularly close with Blanca de Sales, a native of Chile who was among the city's wealthiest socialites. She was then married to an American businessman named John DeSalle and had a son with him. While her husband at the time was involved in a series of not-so-secret affairs, leaving his wife to spend her time in the Manhattan club scene. When she was divorcing her philandering spouse in 1916, Rudolph testified on her behalf in court. She won her suit and gained custody of her son. Whether it was a coincidence or whether it was, as some have suggested, a revenge engineered by John DeSaul, Rudy was arrested a few weeks later at the apartment of Georgie Time, a 
alleged owner of a brothel. The notorious incident was widely reported by New York newspapers, and while no official charges were ever lodged against Rudy and Georgie, they were held in jail as material witnesses against a corrupt public official who was supposedly tied to several brothels. Two days later, they both raised bail and were released. Well, the stink of the arrest followed Rudy everywhere, and he was unable to find work. And then things got worse in the summer of 1917 when Blanca fatally shot her husband during a dispute over custody of their son. Afraid he might be called again as a witness in court, Rudy quickly left town. He joined the cast of a stage musical that was heading west and worked as a bond salesman and a club dancer in San Francisco for a short time to make ends meet. Well, it wasn't long before he ran into New York actor friend Norman Carey, who was in town making a film. Norman suggested that Rudy come to Los Angeles and try his luck in the Hollywood movie business. Well, he did, and the rest became silent movie history. Rudy's first Hollywood film appearance was as an extra in the ballroom scene in a film called Alimony. Over the course of the next few years, he had a number of minor roles where he was usually cast as the villain, thanks to his swarthy Italian looks. Although he was cast in the lead role in the 1918 film A Society Sensation, it would be his part as the heavy in 1919's Eyes of Youth that would be the turning point in his career. He was spotted in this role by screenwriter June Mathis, who pushed Rudy for the role of Julio in the epic film The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1921. First appearing in a barroom scene, Rudy hypnotized the audience and danced the tango to instant celebrity. As a professional dancer in New York, he had learned to move in ways that were unknown to most silent film actors of the time. In those days, actors were almost caricatures of themselves, moving and gesturing with great exaggeration since no one could hear them speak. But Rudy just played himself, handsome, subtle, and graceful, and he won many admirers and broke many hearts. Even before that big break, while still being cast in small roles, he'd gained many admirers in Hollywood. Among them was Dorothy Gish, the popular screen star who persuaded D.W. Griffith to cast Rudy in the 1919 film Out of Luck. Later that same year, Rodolfo Valentino, who soon changed his name to Rudolph Valentino and was simply known as Rudy to his friends, met Gene Acker, a 26-year-old actress. Gene was then the protege of exotic stage and film star Ala Nazimova, who was well-known in the Hollywood community. She was beautiful and she had a lot of connections that could help Valentino's career. After only a two-month relationship, a persistent Valentino convinced Gene Acker to marry him. The couple were married in a modest ceremony in November 1919 and then returned to the Hollywood Hotel where Gene was living at the time. After dancing in the salon, Gene retired to her room. When Rudy came upstairs, she slammed the door in his face and locked him out of her bedroom. The deeply humiliated actor went back to his own apartment in disgrace. Things were not going the way that Valentino had planned. Over the next several months, Valentino pursued his wife, but eventually got tired of the draining and embarrassing situation. The pair divorced in January 1922 in a court hearing that brought forth the mortifying details of their unconsummated wedding night. Luckily, Valentino's rising star would quickly erase the incident from pretty much everyone's memory. 
Things began to change for him after the big-budgeted Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. In the film, he played a South American gaucho who becomes a tango expert in Paris in 1914 and then serves on the front lines during World War I. Valentino was so electrifying in this film as a Latin lover that he became a major star seemingly overnight. Well, after the film's release, he was hailed as a new kind of leading man, one with an exotic appearance and unconventional mannerisms for the time. He brought a sex appeal and sensitivity to the screen, and he attracted millions of women to theaters. Thanks to the newfound sexual freedoms of the 1920s, women were going to the movies like never before, and they were literally swooning over this new heartthrob. Well, it would be the 1921 film, The Sheik, that would firmly establish Valentino's reputation as a great lover, and his final film, Son of the Sheik, ensured that truckloads of fan mail would flood the studio even after his death. Well, despite his adoration by the female public, Valentino got more than his share of abuse by the newspapers and magazine columnists of the time. Many questioned the virility of the sensitive actor, mostly thanks to his mannerisms and dress, which were unusual for the time. He became famous for his slave bracelet of glittering gold and jewels, which he was never seen out in public without. He wore jewelry, heavy perfumes, mink coats, and flashy suits that seemed more than a little eccentric for a man of the day. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for Season 4 of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a 9 to 5 job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
1921, Valentino co-starred with Alet Nazimova in her expensive screen adaption of the stage show, Camille. On this production, he met the beautiful Natasha Rambova, who designed the Art Deco sets for the show. Rudy became infatuated with the striking, dominating young heiress. Soon the two were sharing a bungalow with Valentino's friend and sometimes roommate, photographer Paul Ivano. As Valentino became more widely known to the public and the media, Natasha officially began residing at a nearby address for the sake of appearances. Meanwhile, unhappy with the quality roles he was getting, Valentino signed on with famous players Lasky, which would soon become Paramount Pictures. And he starred in The Chic in 1921. He followed that record-setting role with Blood and Sand the following year, which he played a Spanish bullfighter. At this point, Rudy and Natasha decided to end the illusion of separate residences by getting married. Rather than waiting until his divorce from Gene Acker was final in March 1923, the couple got married in Mexico, thinking that their foreign nuptials would be allowed under California law. Unfortunately, though, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge labeled Valentino a bigamist a few days later. This situation, falling on the heels of other recent Hollywood scandals, like the murder of William Desmond Taylor and the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, was enough to destroy the young actor's career if he wasn't careful. While acting on advice from studio attorneys, Natasha fled to the East Coast, while a shaken Valentino turned himself into authorities, claiming ignorance of the law. No help was forthcoming from the studio, which didn't want to be tainted by this new scandal, so it fell upon Rudy's friends to arrange his bail. Well, as it turned out, Gene Acker refused to cooperate with the district attorney in the case, and the charges against Valentino were eventually dropped. Rudy and Natasha were legally married in 1923. By then, Natasha had convinced Rudy to walk out on his lucrative studio contract, even though if he did, he wasn't allowed to appear in movies for any other company. Well, it seemed like a terrible idea, but Natasha had a plan. To support their lavish lifestyle, the couple embarked on a national exhibition dance tour, and it turned out to be a huge success. Well, by the following year, Valentino had patched up his differences with Paramount. In 1924, though, he made Monsieur Beaucaire, during which Natasha served as both art and costume designer. She constantly interfered with the making of the film and dressed Rudy to be much prissier than the role deserved. Sorry, I couldn't come up with a better word. Audiences balked at the film. They wanted Valentino as a screen hero and lover, not whatever it was that Natasha had turned him into. While many friends believed that Natasha was ruining his career, and as an example of the hold she had over him, they pointed to that slave bracelet that she insisted he wear. He also yielded to her demands that he pose for arty publicity photos, like the near-naked one in which he was dressed as a Native American. Such things did little to endear him to the audiences that already loved him. Well, once his latest Paramount contract expired, United Artists signed Valentino, convinced they could restore him to the top of the box office again. However, a term of the lucrative deal was that his wife could have no part in the films that he made. When Valentino agreed to this term, it brought an end to his marriage with Natasha. She moved away and later divorced him in Paris in 1926. To mask his loneliness and perhaps make up for his recent marital embarrassments, Valentino became involved in a highly publicized relationship with Pola Negri, the Polish-born film star who was creating quite a name for herself in Hollywood. The flashy Valentino and the lovely young actress seemed a perfect match, 
even if it's possible their relationship had been all but arranged by the studio. Well, in 1926, Rudy went to New York to promote the opening of Son of the Sheik, and during a stopover in Chicago, he read an editorial in the Tribute entitled, quote, Pink Powder Puffs. <laughs> As he read the piece, he became infuriated. The piece was a tirade against the pink powder vending machines that had recently been installed in the men's restroom at the local Aragon Ballroom. The anonymous writer blamed this embarrassment, along with the demand for masculine cosmetics, chics, floppy pants, and slave bracelets, on Rudy. The writer asked, quote, why didn't someone quietly drown Rudolph Valentino years ago? Well, needless to say, Valentino was very angry over this unwarranted print attack. In response, he used another Chicago newspaper to issue a challenge to the unnamed writer, daring him to step into the boxing ring with him. The challenge went unanswered, but still steamed. Rudy had his friend Jack Dempsey, the world heavyweight champion, arrange a demonstration bout between Valentino and a Manhattan sports writer. The event, filmed by newsreel cameras, showed the muscular movie star easily trouncing his taller, heavier opponent. Well, this new controversy helped to sell scores of tickets to the son of the Sheik, but the stress took a heavy toll on the star. Within days, he was hospitalized in Manhattan and was operated on for a perforated ulcer and appendicitis. His surgery wounds became infected and tragically, he died on August 23, 1926. At the news of Valentino's death, two women attempted suicide in front of the hospital. In London, a girl took poison in front of his signed photograph. An elevator boy at the Ritz in Paris was discovered dead on his bed, which was covered with photos of Valentino. While the actor was lying in state at Campbell's funeral home in New York, the streets became a macabre circus as a mob of over 100,000 women and many men fought for a last glimpse of Valentino. Among those who were permitted into the candlelit viewing room of the funeral home were his ex-wife, Jean Acker, whose display of wild grief beside her former husband's casket may have been less extreme if she'd known then that Valentino had only left her a single solitary dollar in his will. Another guest was film star Pola Negri, who upstaged everyone with her designer mourning clothes. She sobbed and fainted before the coffin and, of course, before the photographers. Between her bursts of weeping, she claimed that she and Valentino had planned to be married, while her theatrics ended up ruining her career. To add to the carnival-like atmosphere, a commemorative song began to be played on radios across America, and at the same time that Valentino's body was being shipped west to Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery, the song, crooned by Rudy Valley, became a hit. It was called, There's a New Star in Heaven Tonight, Rudy Valentino. And it's bad, really bad. Anyway, after Rudy's body was placed in his grave, another circus began. One of Ghost Story's ladies in black and a lingering phantom that refuses to leave Hollywood in peace. After Valentino was laid to rest, his crypt became the haunt of the mysterious Lady in Black, who returned there each year on the anniversary of his death. She began appearing there at the time of his interment, walking through the cemetery to the main mausoleum and placing a bouquet of red roses in a holder at his crypt. She then brushed her gloved hand over the metal plaque that had his name on it, making sure it was free of dust, and then knelt to pray before she silently departed. 
Rumors surrounded the First Lady in Black for years, but it's believed the original mourner was Deidre Flame. As a young girl, she had once been very sick and ended up in the hospital. Valentino, who was a friend of her mother's, came to visit her and brought the child a red rose. Legend has it that he told her, quote, if I die before you do, please come and stay by me because I don't want to be alone. You come and talk to me. Well, Dieter recovered, but Valentino went to an early grave. He died then on August 23rd in 1926, and Dieter brought a bouquet of red roses to his crypt on that date every year for the next three decades. In later years, Dietra stopped going to Rudy's grave because dozens of wannabes wearing black were swarming Valentino's crypt on the anniversary of his death. Sometimes it looked like a lady in black convention every August 23rd. Well, Dietra decided from then on she'd mourn Valentino in private. Well, in 1984, she died in her home that was filled with Valentino memorabilia. Dietra was buried wearing black with a single red carnation symbolizing the many flowers she had placed at Valentino's grave. Well, the famous lady in black was no ghost, but Valentino himself is said to be a very restless spirit. He is among the many ghosts seen entering Paramount Studios, where he once worked from the cemetery at the Lemon Grove Gate. And there are many other places where Rudy's ghost has been encountered. One location is the house known as Falcon's Lair, Valentino's home in Beverly Hills for one year, until his death in 1926. According to the stories and to Natasha Rambova, who claimed to be in contact with the actor's spirit for many years after he died, Valentino refused to accept the idea that he was dead. This is allegedly the reason why his ghost remains behind in the mansion. Actor Harry Carey was one of the owners of the house who encountered Valentino's ghost there, but he wouldn't be the only one. In fact, Millicent Rogers spent only one night in the place before being chased away, as she called it, by Valentino. His apparition appeared in dark corridors, in his former bedroom, and in the old stables, where his beloved horse was kept. One stable owner reportedly walked out the front gate and never returned to the place after seeing the former master of the house petting one of the horses. Another account tells of a caretaker who once ran screaming down the canyon in the middle of the night after meeting Valentino face to face. Passersby allegedly saw a shadowy figure looking out of a window on the second floor of the house. And when they remarked that the figure looked a lot like Valentino, they were always surprised to learn that the mansion had once been its home. Well, in recent years, the main house was demolished for a new mansion. However, Falcon Lair's original gates and reportedly Valentino's ghost still linger at this renowned Beverly Hills estate. Another haunted site is what used to be known as Valentino Place, an old apartment building that used to be an elegant speakeasy back during the days of Prohibition in the 1920s. Legend has that Valentino often used to frequent the place for parties and romantic interludes, and that his ghost still makes an occasional appearance. In April 1989, a young actress who was living in the Hollywood apartment building said she went to bed one night and felt someone get into bed with her. When she then felt someone making advances, she opened her eyes and saw the handsome face of Rudolph Valentino. Handsome or not, though, she was so terrified she literally fainted. When she awakened, the figure was gone, but the bedsheets and pillows were left in complete disarray and strewn about the room. That building is now within the boundaries of Paramount Studios, and there are more. Lots more, Rudy really gets around. There's even a story about a cursed ring that belonged to Valentino, which I included in a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. If you sign up for that, 
you can hear it too. But sightings of Valentino's ghost have reportedly occurred at his former beach house in Oxnard. That house is now a private residence, but over the years, many witnesses have reported a dark figure pacing back and forth on the home's veranda. Valentino stayed at the house while filming The Sheik in 1921. Many believe that he likes to return for a visit. Another place where Valentino allegedly still haunts is the famed Knickerbocker Hotel, which was the star of an earlier episode this season. One of the main attractions of the hotel was the Renaissance Revival Bar, and a frequent guest there was Valentino, who reportedly loved to dance the tango to the live music performed in the saloon. He has been reported in the building many times over the years. Another Valentino haunting is said to occur at the Santa Maria Inn. It's said that Valentino returns to his former suite there and that guests who stay in room 210 feel a heavy presence on the bed and hear eerie knocking sounds from inside the walls. The inn was a favorite getaway spot for the actor and perhaps he is still getting away from all the busy days that he spends haunting Hollywood after all these years. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We hope that you'll take the time to share a review about the show on iTunes. Even if that's not where you normally listen, it really helps us out a lot. Though without Cody recording alongside me this week, uh, again, I don't have to go through that whole big list of things that we normally do because I like to interrupt Cody. Kind of hard to interrupt yourself. So I'll just say that if you're a fan of the show, American Hauntings is not just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, and much more, and you can find it all on our main website at AmericanHauntings.net. We also hope that you'll take a minute and see how you can support the show on Patreon. We have bonus episodes, like the one about Valentino's Cursed Ring, and you can only hear that as a supporter. You can also get discounts, shirts in the mail, stuff in the mail, and more. For those who don't understand how important Patreon is to us, I always tell you to go back and listen to the first season and then listen to this one and... Uh, I think you'll find a bit of difference there. Patreon is what made it all get better. It is integral to our show. So check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. So until next time, good night, good luck, farewell, and happy hauntings.